This is hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. When we think back to how we were taught about the United States, its beginning and its formative years, we might remember stories of revolutionaries fighting for an experiment in democracy and the founding documents that guarantee that so-called democracy. We also likely remember being taught how the United States did not become the global power that we recognize today until long after, at the dawn of the 20th century, over a hundred years later. There may even be some foggy memories of history classes where you learned about President Theodore Roosevelt's so-called Great White Fleet, an armada of 16 battleships painted sparkling white that would circumnavigate the globe in 1907 as a symbol of the United States emerging as a global power to be reckoned with. But what if it was another navy of a sort, and the industry around it that revealed a great deal of American power nearly a century earlier. What if long before the U.S. had what it could call a navy worthy of challenging Europe's great powers, what if before that a privately owned force of merchant vessels were a great source of real power for the fledgling United States? And more to the point, what if instead of revolutionaries and documents assuring democracy, the founders were also businessmen, investors who were focused on, to be blunt, Profits as much as they were loyal patriots? What if a part of the founding of the United States and the early years of the U.S. were driven by insurance, specifically marine insurance? After all, there are other forms of power that uh, more than only what comes from the state, and apparently these insurers were a real form of power at the beginning of the 19th century. In a moment, we'll consider the earliest days of the USA in a way you likely may not have considered before when we speak with historian Hannah Farber, author of Underwriters of the United States, How Insurance Shaped the American Founding. Hannah is assistant professor of history at Columbia University. Hannah is a series editor for American Beginnings, 1500 to 1900 at the University of Chicago Press. In 2020-2021, Hannah held a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship at the New York Historical Society. Hannah is a co-organizer of the Columbia University Seminar on Early American History and Culture, a forum for scholarly conversations and works in progress in early American history, broadly defined. You can follow Hannah on Twitter at Faber Hannah, that's F-A-B, sorry, Farber Hannah, that's F-A-R-B-E-R Hannah. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz producing is Sebastian Vupper. Sebastian, what's new by you? I got to tell you that the dessert that your wife made for us a couple weeks ago was absolutely fantastic. Myself and my girlfriend devoured it. We were both like, oh my God, that looks like such a decadent piece of dessert. And then we just went right through it, not thinking that that would happen. And I I think it was gone in less than three minutes. What the hell was that? Uh, That was a peanut butter cup brownie um, with like Peanut butter cups, peanut butter, brownie dough, uh, the rest you have to ask her. That's probably uh, a trade secret. Every part of that, every item that you just mentioned is something that my girlfriend doesn't like, and she absolutely loved that dessert. She was blown away by it, so thank you very much. What else is new about you? Uh, Well, not so much new as rather, I don't know, like two years old, uh, (laughs) my relationship with my now wife. Uh um, On the day, today is our two-year anniversary. Of your first date? 
Yeah, yeah of our first date. Oh, crazy. Yeah. Where'd you go? Uh, we went to the Swedish American Museum and then just uh, ended up spending the entire day in Andersonville until, I don't know, like 10 o'clock at night. So, yeah, it was a very, very successful first date. And, uh, well, now we are in a very success- successful first marriage uh well, congratulations yeah. on two years. Thank you. I uh, My first date with my girlfriend, I took her to a Thai restaurant. I'll tell you what the name of that Thai restaurant is following our guests. Look at that great tease. I'll write that down over here so I'll remember. A week ago today, I told Sebastian that I had the odd sensation of feeling fine for the first time since summer. I was off my stomach meds finally. My throat was not in pain as it had been since August. I felt relatively... Dare I say it? Great! Of course, such optimism jinxed me, and that night I got violently ill following dinner, and the next day I woke up in such abdominal pain that I could not do the show. I crawled back in bed and slept for a total of 14 out of 18 hours, so I am not going to jinx myself this week by even saying I feel fine. So, I feel okay. Let's just leave it at that. But more important than me feeling... Okay. Sebastian, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is whatcha influencing? Whatcha influencing? <laughs> whatcha influencing? I like how he's just getting down to contractions like whatcha. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug. The This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. The trucker's cap, the winner hat. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment of truth, Jeff bites a handbook that feeds him. Sebastian will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Hannah on insurance companies' role in American independence and its earliest formative years. Email us, message us via Facebook, tweet at us via Twitter with your guest and topic suggestions, or just tell us anything you'd like us to share on the show, and we'll likely read it on air. And... uh, Email we got we got this email this week from someone who calls themselves a reader and, and it's just odd on so many levels. A reader writes, "I found a reference to your blog, This Is Hell, via Matt Taibbi's. See what I mean? The only thing close to a blog we ever had was when we had the Nine Circles of Hell, the daily rundown of the news that did not make the news, the news that scared the news." But that ended seven or eight years ago, although I've been considering bringing it back in a scaled-back on-air form rather than a daily blog. And why we would be linked in any way at Matt Taibbi's blog is also beyond me. Matt was on the show several times back in the 2000s, but eventually his star shined too bright for doing Saturday morning interviews, and he stopped appearing on the show. However, he did give us an endorsement, a quote showing his appreciation for This Is Hell, At the time, Matt wrote, I applaud Chuck's professionalism, his incisive wit, his keen sense of the moment. He is one of the most important social commentators on the American scene. I only wish I could remember appearing on his program, which I found hilarious. 
Years later, I would actually meet Matt Taibbi at an ACLU function downtown here in Chicago, where he was the keynote speaker. I reminded him of being him being on This Is Hell several times, and the quote he gave us. He then reminded me in front of the higher-ups in the local ACLU chapter that it was true he did not remember me or the show, so why we would be linked at anything Matt's ever done is completely unknown to me. A reader continues, If you've been in book selling, as your brief bio at your site relates, prior to 1996, there's every good chance that the works noted below shall have been familiar to you at the time or soon after they were published. In that case, forgive me for recommending that of which you may already be aware. For the past 30 years, at least, we've been living in a new golden age of junk thought and junk reasoning, now becoming dominant in much of the conventionally viewed, respectable culture's mass media. All of this was foreseen and foretold in four important books, among others, of social commentary, all, if my memory serves me, published in 1992, Norman Levitt and Paul Gross's Higher Superstition, The Academic Left and Its Quarrels with Science, John Ralston Saul's Voltaire's Bastards, The Dictatorship of Reason in the West, from 1994, John W. Aldridge's little-remarked essay, Talents and Technicians, Literary Chic in the New Assembly Line Fiction, and Neil Postman's third-to-last published work, Technopoly, The Surrender of Culture to Technology. The email is then signed, as I said, a reader. Now, I'm not certain if a reader is offering a syllabus for me to read and study or simply that they want me to be aware of 1990s writing that foresaw much of what we are experiencing today in the mass media. But what I can tell you is I may have been a bookseller working in a bookstore, but it was not the kind of bookstore where any of those books could have been found, which means thanks to a reader for referencing works of which I am not familiar. The only author whose name I recognize is that of Neil Postman, whose 1985 book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business, was often referred to by our guests in the earliest years of our show back in the late 1990s. And at the time, for many Northwestern University students who worked on our show, Postman's 1985 book was required reading. Like I said, the email from a reader was odd, first finding a link to our show from a past guest who has not been on since 2008, who insists he does not remember having been on our show, followed by a reader offering us a reading list from the early 1990s for no particular reason other than to remind us that a lot of people saw a new golden age of junk thought and junk reasoning coming to mass media. We also got an email from Eric Kay, who writes, Good morning. I was listening to the show this morning and heard you mention you're looking for folks to help out with board operation. I'm interested. However, I do not have prior experience, but am a quick learner. Is there any additional information you can pass along regarding the role? Best, Eric. Eric, I forwarded your email to producer Alex, and he will be getting back to you shortly. But a couple of things everyone should know about our board operator positions that are open. First, you do not need any experience. Second, if you are a quick learner like Eric, then you will learn quickly how to run the board because it is not that difficult. Sure, there's some nuance to making the show sound good, but how to actually run the board is not that difficult. Difficult. We'll have more of your feedback following our conversation with Hannah on the forces that contributed to the earliest formative days of the United States. We'll also have your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, whatcha influencing? Whatcha influencing? Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. The history of the United States may not be what you think. That is, 
if you think the United States was built solely on democracy and did not have any real power until the early 20th century. In fact, insurance played a significant role in American independence in its early form of power. Here to help us have a better understanding of that time, historian Hannah Farber is author of Underwriters of the United States, How Insurance Shaped the American Founding. Welcome to This Is Hell, Hannah. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on the show. This is a fascinating book. You can follow Hannah on Twitter at Farber Hannah. That's F-A-R-B-E-R Hannah. You tell a story in the pl- prologue where a merchant buys an insurance policy, undertakes a voyage, suffers losses, and receives indemnif- indemnification, which I'm going to be stumbling yeah. over this whole morning. <laughs> it, it is a story about events that could have taken place only where and when they did in American port cities right at the water's edge during the first few decades after the establishment of the United States. This is a story about how the old business of marine insurance became suddenly and deeply involved in the new business of American state making. Are marine insurers overlooked when it comes to the history of American state making? And if so, why do you think that is the case? I do think they are extremely overlooked. And part of the reason is because they are, uh, what they do is very complicated. Part of the reason is because what they do is often considered to be extremely boring. Uh, And part of the reason is because they manage to make themselves not very visible in ways that were strategically advantageous for them. Um, They managed through a long and uh, critical period of American history to not get into very many public fights with the U.S. government, with which their their work was closely intertwined, uh, and many of them made a lot of money in so doing. So you wrote a book about a process that's complicated and boring. That's that's what's my goal. (laughs) So is that is that there's two questions about that. Is that purposeful? The make the, the appearance that it is complicated and boring. And why would you want people to believe it is complicated and not you, but why would insurers want you to believe that insurance is complicated and boring? Um, Well, some of it is genuine. Uh, Ensuring the commercial voyages in the of the age of revolution or of the uh, 1700s was a fantastically complicated uh, set of procedures. It involved a giant body of customary knowledge that Uh, So only merchants could really possess knowledge that included things like particular kinds of accounting, but also the proper management of shipboard procedure, um, and also the sort of uh, laws of one's own country and of foreign ports, and not only the laws themselves, but which laws merchants were supposed to obey and which laws they could overlook. Um, And... Uh, Some of it is boring, for sure, Uh, but more importantly, for the purposes of the book that I ended up writing about it, when, to my surprise, I found it more and more interesting the deeper and deeper I got, uh, was the fact that it was to their advantage to appear boring, because uh, it helped them stay out of the political spotlight and gave them room to maneuver and room to engage in political processes and negotiations in ways that suited them best. I did not set out to write a book about uh, 
about insurance, I set out to write a book about daring adventures in the age of sale. Um, and at first, I just thought it was fantastically funny how often I came across cross references to insurance because I thought um, it was it was so dull. <laughs> how could anybody um, how could anybody spend all this time in this dramatic world thinking about their paperwork? Um, and gradually, I came to understand that the paperwork was what allowed people to manage and find legible these enormous risks of this age of global warfare. Which makes your book about a complicated and boring process incredibly fascinating. This really did make me reconsider the the earliest history that I you know, was taught about the United States. You write that during the American Revolutionary War and the first eventful decades thereafter, as Americans hashed out the meaning of citizenship and put theories of governance into practice, as revolutions tore apart the empires of the Atlantic world and war raged across the oceans, marine insurers underwrote the establishment of the United States. So was the United States a kind of safe harbor for investment because of the tumult that was happening overseas? Was the U.S. simply a, a good investment and one of the few good investments at the time? So people don't really know. That's the interesting thing. Um, they're the overseas commercial community, people with money, are watching very closely as unrest is unfolding in the British North American colonies. Um, more famous than the insurance story is the drama of uh, whether foreign powers like the Dutch and the French are going to lend money or military aid to the American rebels um, who are fighting the the British Empire. Um, and the more they win, the more it seems like they might be good investments. But even when the revolution ends, the story's not over. There are plenty of states that sort of make it through the independence process and then fall into enormous financial difficulties thereafter. Um, so the United States is a really interesting place after its independence because it it has these two really dramatically outsized assets um, in a way, the more the better known asset is American land, um, which is just this extraordinarily vast swath of territory um, for which the British have ceded their formal claims. Now, that said, of course, that land is still home to a lot of sovereign native tribes that have in no way um, uh, agreed to cede their sovereignty to the United States. But that's a problem that Americans are, are willing to take on later. Um, but that's not cash in hand, um, but the outsized American merchant fleet, um, the fleet of ships that are ready, willing, and able to engage in commercial shipping around the world, and the expertise that is necessary to put that fleet into action, the commercial connections, the financial networks, everything to make that system work, sure, it takes a hit during the revolution and the, the economic depression that follows the independence war, but still the United States has this tremendous asset in hand. Um, and so while it faces a, an increasingly risky world, um, that asset needs to be put into play in order for the American economy to get going, in order for uh, the American federal government to raise revenue from its merchants, um, in order to administer any government whatsoever. So the potential is there. The stakes are pretty high. Um, in the early 1790s, the French Revolutionary Wars break out and all hell breaks loose on the oceans. But Americans can't turn away from this, right? They're just not in a position to say no. They need this income stream. They've got to make it work. And so managing the risk of commerce in that age of, of warfare it becomes a, a really important project for um, the first citizens of the United States. 
And you write about the cultural impact of underwriting. You write that whenever or wherever underwriting was an established financial practice, the term underwriting gained cultural purchase and began to signify a more general application of one's resources. People used underwriting, quote unquote, to mean expressing support for an idea or placing the personal reputation behind a project. And you add that your claim that marine insurers underwrote the United States is not only about actions taken in the realm of finance, but also about the engagement of a more extensive set of resources in a state-making project that was as much cultural and political as it was economic, which I find fascinating. So is underwriting's role in American state-making far beyond only marine underwriting? Um. Well, so it's the the marine underwriter. Oh, right. So the underwriting itself, right? So what happens is that um, again, in this period when the United States has this merchant fleet, when it's facing enormous risk, um, when everybody is sort of watching the semi-independent community of American merchants, which which sort of has has one foot in the country and their citizens and their patriots, but they have their other foot in their overseas merchant networks. They have to to decide, and people are watching them to see what they decide about how they place their resources in relationship to the new United States. Are these people with independent connections and healthy self-interest going to invest in the United States? Are they going to vocally support the United States? Are they going to uh, are they going to assert that uh, American commerce is in aggregate going to be productive. And so when insurers make themselves visible and send those signals, people find that, um, you know, people in the know, people who read port city newspapers um, find that an extremely important signal. And so that signal, the, the importance of that signal is hard to quantify, but it certainly contributes to the idea that the United States itself is a risk that's going to pay off. So besides the um, the underwriting that insurers do of the American fleet, and beside the investment that insurance companies make in the American state, which I'm happy to talk about more, um, they're also selectively <laughs> making it known when they put their resources at the disposal of the United States, when they're sharing the risk of the new country. Um, and when these these groups of people, these, these insurers who are understood to be the, the leaders of the merchant community, the most influential, the most central, um, the most highly capitalized, coordinated groups, when they decide that they are um, they're backing the United States in these various ways, um, this is uh, an extremely significant factor, both financially and, as I said, as a, as a sort of a signal. So to what extent was the United States independence project a private for-profit independence project? Right. So this is actually a really old conversation for American historians. And the one of the oldest versions of this story is the sort of progressive intervention in the early 20th century that asserted that um, merchants especially were interested in um, ratifying the federal constitution of the United States um, because they were interested in in um, federal securities essentially as an investment for themselves to profit off of. So it's not that this has been a completely overlooked topic, but um, it's always a little bit difficult to write about merchants as a class in the United States or to even talk about whether the idea of a class exists in this time period um, because 
that idea of a class means so many things to so many different people. So I thought I would take a different angle and talk about this instead as a financial system. Um, there are all kinds of people who are invested in this financial system to different degrees and in different ways. Um, and uh, when they, when their system comes sort of colliding into the new United States, um, it's going to look for ways that to, to make a profitable accommodation with the United States. What um, are these groups of merchants going to get out of aligning their own goals with the country? So they are genuinely taking risk of the United States, um, but they are also expecting to gain a profit from that. Um, and I do think that the um, the traditional political story of American independence, which focuses on risks that people take for more purely patriotic purposes, is not able to cope with the ways in which um, certain people invested more because they they had more, they had more money to invest in different ways in, in the United States, and they expected to get something out of that. So you also point out that the national financial infrastructure that emerged from the war uh, bore the mark of underwriters' logic. Philadelphia merchant underwriter Robert Morris, who famously placed his personal resources behind the independence uh, project, he simultaneously brokered foreign loans and state debt and created the Bank of North America. In this fashion, he established the mechanisms through which capital-holding individuals would take the risks of independence and its economic uncertainty. So you write that since these mechanisms required merchant experts to manage them, Robert Morris's wartime undertakings should be understood to include not only the establishment of home rule, but the determination of who should rule at home. Morris is most commonly described as a financier of the United States, but his designation of underwriter in the early modern sense of subscriber, supporter, or guarantor suits him equally well. So was this something new to have a financier so involved in the establishment of a state? Was this unprecedented? So there are foreign um, foreign financiers in the 18th century who are who are instrumental in some really successful projects, like the uh, the establishment of um, uh, the the Bank of England, um, which has its own sort of torturous, profitable relationship with the country, with Britain itself. Uh, so this is somewhat of a familiar pattern from European history, where some financier makes some form. Uh, through which um, private investment can be made to ally with the state to some degree on its own terms. So Morris is one of these guys who who makes that institutional project take shape. Um, what was interesting to me was that part of his background was that he was from the North American colony's biggest community of merchant underwriters in Philadelphia. And so when he is working on his plans for the bank to get the United States through the Revolutionary War and through um, and to set it up for this aftermath period, when he is he he's architecting the bank's mechanisms, um, which is essentially the ways in which private capital is going to be harnessed and um, and and used by the state, but is also expecting a certain amount of control and a certain degree of returns. Um, he's coming out of the underwriting community when he does that. Um, 
he's coming out of a world where it is assumed that merchants are this group of people with a set of shared interests. Um, I talk about how it, it's hard for me to imagine merchants as a class. If you sort of look at that under a microscope, it, it tends to escape from you and break down. Um, but they, they, their assumption that they have, that they're like this shared class with this set of idiosyncratic practices and this need to understand themselves apart from the state and, and have their own share in what the government produces, um, he's he's building that in when he's taking the when he's making the bank the way that it is. Um, at the same time, Morris is trying to get foreign financiers to um, take on some of the debt that the United States are incurring fighting the independence war, um, and to convince them again that the United States is an entity worth investing in. And he reaches out to merchant networks to some Amsterdam underwriters, well-known Amsterdam underwriters, um, who really, I think, understand more than we can see it now that part of what they're doing is consciously taking on the risk of the project of American independence as a whole, and that that's going to yield them some profits. How much of a risk was being taken on by the state? Was American state making a good investment because the state took on some of the risk for the private profiteer? Right, so the state has to come into existence. So one of the things that happens during the Revolutionary War is there is this um, this constant conflict over what who is responsible for vessels that get sunk um fighting the british during the independence war um once you one of the ways that you can see the united states come into existence is through its balance sheet when it all of a sudden has has a profit and loss ledger and when it takes on the risks of american merchants who are choosing to lend their vessels to the country to fight the war. So American merchants, so the, the, just to back up, when there's no United States, there's of course no United States Navy. Once they start fighting, well, they're gonna have to get something together that looks like United States Navy really quickly, like it takes a while to build ships. So a lot of this has to come together really quickly out of the merchant community. So um, they, the United States sort of gets merchants to to offer up their vessels for the purposes of fighting the war. And then the United States t is the entity that takes the risk of those private vessels when, if they are damaged or sunk during the war. So that's one way that merchants are supporting the war effort, but there is a, a risk sharing relationship between these merchants in this new state that they are helping to invent. Now, <laughs> What a lot of merchants prefer to do instead during the Revolutionary War is to fit out their ships as privateers, because then they are more able to catch what they kill. Uh, sometimes they want to do a little bit of fighting, but also a little bit of commerce at the same time. So throughout this uh, independence, French Revolutionary, Napoleonic Wars period, um, it's often appealing for Americans when they have the possibility for American merchants to fit out their vessels to do like eh, some fighting and some business and some catching of, of enemies, depending on what they find out along the way. Um, the fascinating thing to me about that is that those ventures are also insured. So from the American Revolutionary War, privateering ventures are insured by Americans. Um, and this is a very local community type of thing that happens. So little knots of families, brothers, sons-in-law, people like that, you know, somebody will 
own the ship and somebody will, some folks will get together to fit out the ship and then some other overlapping local community of people will underwrite um, this risky voyage, which again, maybe just um, trying to nab British merchant ships. Uh, it might be some fighting and some trade to theoretically block blockaded French ports in the Caribbean or something like that. Um, merchants want this ability to maneuver as much as possible, um, and they want to sort of offload their risk onto the government whenever possible. But if they can, they want to at least make money while going about their business as much as they can. So at the time, how much were there any concerns among underwriters and financiers that the American independence project might fail? Uh, it's not a great situation for them during some of the years of the war. And you can see moments in the history of these brokerages. Some of their papers survived, not very many, but uh, insurance rates get very high. Um, that reflects inflation as well as high risk. Um, they are... American patriots. So I, I, I really don't go through this book saying that my main purpose is to doubt these people's commitment to the United States, but rather to say that you can't think about what they're doing without understanding that they have the private profit incentive in the front of their minds at the same time. Um, and what's really lucky for Americans is that by the time things get really hot for for them. By the time this outsized asset of the Americans, their merchant fleet is really put to the test in the War of 1812, um, when finally <laughs> they can't ignore Britain and Britain can't ignore them and, and matters have politically escalated and this war has to, is, is starting. Um, by this time, so much money has accrued in the merchant sector and the American state is sort of more established in the procedures through which it raises money, through its customs houses. Um, insurers at that point have more flexibility to sort of, and they, they, their investment strategies fan out in a bunch of different directions. So some of them are still into this super high risk, high reward commerce, whether it's legal or illegal by the standards of their own government. Uh, some of them choose to just uh, lend more money to the government that needs that money more to fight the war. Some of them lend locally and some of them just sort of pull out and say, we're going to wait this out. And by this time, they have this these sort of corporate, they have these corporate forms that a lot of them are operating in, um, corporate charters that the state governments have given them that lends them legal and cultural security. So that's another nice thing that the United States, in this case, the states has done for the insurers is give them this stabilizing form of the corporation. So was what was good for the financiers good for the state and what was good for the state good for financiers? Because that sounds a lot like General Motors in 1950s. <laughs> um, it, it often is. And I, I would say that what um, some the United States again is lucky in a lot of ways in that it doesn't have to put this situation to, it doesn't have to test the merchants too far or rather it, it can't um, even not very far into the war of 1812 it quickly becomes harder for the United States to sell its own securities to the merchant community um, <laughs> at the beginning of the war people are more gung-ho and excited to invest in the state and its war making capacity and pretty quickly they're like mm, you know I don't know <laughs> so in some ways I don't know if you want to call it luck or a cascade of, of various patriotic successes um, uh, or a combination of the two, but they haven't had to push the merchant community too hard. And they know to some degree that they can't. 
And there is evidence of this before the War of 1812 breaks out, um, when Thomas Jefferson's administration is sort of already thinking whether about whether they want to go to war against Britain in, in 1807, because Britain is just pissing them off so much. They um, Jefferson writes to the um, he writes to his merchant correspondent in Baltimore, and he's like, "Yo, like, how much money do you think we can borrow from the Baltimore banks if we need it to fight a war?" Again, the state needs this money. It needs banks, which are these again largely merchant-operated concerns. So they're some broader group of investors, um, and. The, his correspondent writes back, there is not as much money as you would think that you could get out of the banks of Baltimore. Like It looks like they have all this capital, but like half their capital is promised to the insurance companies, which is to say that if suddenly war breaks out, Baltimore merchants suffer a lot of losses. They go to their insurance companies for compensation. Insurance companies pull their money out of the banks. That's money effectively that the banks won't be able to lend to the state. So that's sort of a hard stop for the United States in terms of the resources that it's able to access. Now, would that actually come forward in bald political terms? That's not the way politics tends to work in this period. You probably wouldn't have people making speeches in the legislature saying, let's get these insurance companies to just tolerate their losses for a while and leave the banks alone so we can borrow the money. You know, there's just too many people at this point on both sides of the political aisle who are who are invested and they're tolerating that. Right. So everybody um, <laughs> I don't want to say everybody, but a lot of Americans with money are sort of quietly accepting that um, merchant risk and merchant reward are things that are shaping what the government is able to do. Um, and they don't want to talk about it as much as you think. Uh, they talk about it more with respect to banks. Banks are much more public-facing institutions than insurance companies. Americans, like if you say banks to an American in the early 19th century, they have a set of associations. They have big feelings about banks, um, whether they're good or bad, or you know what kind of things you have to look out for with those with those banks. Banks face the public. Um, everybody knows banks can also like be forced to make loans to the government. Um, the fascinating thing to me about the insurance companies is that, first of all, they're very closely connected to the banks. Uh, they have a lot of the same founders as the banks, but they're not so visible. Um, they are able to stay more behind the scenes. They're able to say, look, we're just, we, we just belong to the merchants. We don't do things that the public needs to know about so much. Um, and by and large, they're able to keep the conversation there. Um, and, and part of it, I would just also add, is because they're, um, because insurance is not just a project of one political party. Um, and as we all, I mean, we all learn in our first yearly American history classes, probably that there is some affiliation of the New England region with a um, Federalist Party that um, tends to be more friendly to certain forms of um, policies preferred by merchants, but it's it, it fans out really quickly. Um, and Americans very quickly discover that it's more, it's easier and more fun and more profitable to just try to start lots and lots of corporations than to take down your enemy's corporation. So by 1812, you know, there are just so many for-profit American corporations. A lot of them are entangled. They're on both sides of the political spectrum. And like this whole financial sector is in place and it's partly managing American engagement with the world in a way that um, doesn't 
it's not to their advantage to bring it forward all the time in political discourse. So how successful were these underwriters at convincing the public that they were doing a public or community service despite their oversized wealth and political influence? And does that resonate throughout U.S. history? I think they do a pretty good job of at least making the things that they're doing that are unpopular, like supporting smugglers. They're, they do a pretty good job at keeping that out of sight. Um, what, you can even see this in, in the built environment, their ability to stay out of sight. Uh, it's a very common pattern in the early 19th century when um, groups of Americans are starting to charter banks in the big American port cities. The banks are these big, heavy, attractive buildings. They come in different styles. Sometimes they're neoclassical or whatnot, um, but they face the public. They're supposed to signal that they're visible, that they're stable. Um, and a very common pattern is that the insurance company will like rent a room from the bank or it'll be right behind the bank or you want it, it doesn't have a public facing um, it doesn't have a public facing portal because it's a business by merchants for merchants, even though these businesses are often so interconnected that like the same guy can be the president of the insurance company and the local bank or the same guy in these like in these New England towns, the same guy could be like the cashier of the bank and the secretary of the insurance company, but it's the bank that's this public facing portal and the insurance company is not. Um, so insurance companies start becoming more visible in American politics toward the mid 19th century when they start doing more business with the public at large. So when life insurance starts becoming big in the mid 19th century, when you start having this population of urban white collar workers who can be convinced that a good thing to do for their families is for them to buy insurance policies. So if they die, their widow or children are supported. Da, da, da. This is this whole like social transformation of American society that's taking shape. So then insurance has to start to become a business that's more public facing. Fire insurance um, is a funny story and somebody else needs to write more of this book about fire insurance that I didn't have time to write. Um, but fire insurance companies are, are numerous. They're not, they're, their business doesn't bring in that much money because you just can't make that much money off issuing policies. So they tend to be investment vehicles. It, it becomes, again, toward the later part of the 19th century when you have industrialization, that's when fire insurance companies become visible public entities because they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're for industrialists to a significant degree. But it's really life insurance companies. When you, so when you walk around Philadelphia or Hartford or Boston and you see these big insurance company buildings, these are from later when insurance is more of a public facing business. And that made it possible to really memory hole um, the merchant finance aspect of insurance in this really early period of the American founding. Um, another thing that happens is that this that, that by the mid-19th century, you finally have <laughs> good American literature. My apologies to those who study early American literature. I love it too, but there's a lot more of it. And sorry to say, I think it's a lot better by the mid-19th century. Uh, people writing about American cultural phenomena, cultural critics of their own day who... Um, 
want to have some sort of a declension narrative that that's politically satisfying to them. Like they want to say back in the day, Americans took risks just because they believe in the country um, and, 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 and business was real, right? So even the mid 19th century, people were going like back in the old days, money was real. Like you didn't have any of this NFT digital, like flim flam, you know, people were like, exchanging gold and doing stuff because they, you know, business was real and patriotism was real and people believed in it, right? Those were like the OG American um, patriots. And by the mid 19th century, you know, in our own time, it's all flim flam, it's all paper money, boom and bust. Um, and that that story is really deceptive. Um, and I, I suppose this makes me sound a, a little bit cynical, but I don't find the, the declension narrative particularly helpful. It's useful to people who are trying to make their own world a better place, which is great. Um, but what they don't see is that the, <laughs> there have always been these people who are into this high risk, high reward investment world. Um, and in the very first years of the United States, it's the United States that's this high risk project. Um, so the Patriots are sometimes these investors, like they got a hand in it. Um, and then investment, flim flam, risk taking speculation, the people who are into that are doing different things by the 19th century. And the cultural commentators are saying, oh, you know, it's not like it used to be. Well, yeah, it's not like it used to be, but it's not like people got worse in my opinion. <laughs> I was certain that we would hear the phrase OG American Patriots on the show today. <laughs> we are speaking with historian Hannah Farber, author of Underwriters of the United States, How Insurance Shaped the American Founding. Well, so should the financiers, the financiers of American independence be considered patriots or acting in a patriotic way by undermining, uh, I mean, sorry, undermining, underwriting the American state? Were they, at least from their perspective, not only working in a for-profit way, but in a patriotic Way. So they absolutely are patriotic, but they get a lot better of a deal out of their underwriting of the United States than, for example, another group of people who took risks on behalf of the United States, which is the soldiers who fought for American independence, who were paid in these financial instruments that had little value uh, at the time and less shortly after. And um, these poor starving soldiers in the post-war depression have to sell this like paper that they got these different kinds of IOUs um, for money to eat. So in a way they, they physically took the risk of independence um, and then they didn't have the resources that allowed them to ride out or maneuver around the bumpy period. They were just, they were poor, they were hurt, they had to eat, they had to sell their potentially valuable property. And so when you have this famous moment when um, we're moving toward a constitution, we have a set of coordinated grown-ups in the room who are talking about how to stabilize American finance and you know fund the debt. And Hamilton famously goes on to, to help do all these things. Um, those people who had more money to begin with are in a better position to make good on the risks that they took, whereas the people who underwrote with their bodies who were poor weren't in that position. So it has to be part of the conversation. And I, I think that the patriotism can be real, but the risks and the rewards are not always so visible. So I think it's the visibility that's really um, the problem um, 
when people don't see the kinds of risks and rewards that are taking place out of sight for people who do have money, it's easier to write them out of the story. Um, it's easy to avoid. If you don't see them, you can't put them in context with the kind of risks that everybody else is taking. So I, I'm I'm a historian. I I am so averse to taking contemporary lessons out of my scholarship. I've bombed every attempt that I've had to write an op-ed that's like, what, should, what Americans should do now? But I, if there's one thing that I've been meditating on bringing this project to a completion, it's been thinking about how we need to have a clearer understanding of all the risks that are taking that that are occurring within our political landscape and all of the rewards that some people are getting from taking those risks. Um, and I'm not sure Americans are great at seeing that. Um, it's easier to focus on one political issue or one constituency, and it's, it's harder to balance the whole story. Is, is considering the financing of the United States at its very beginning, do you think that's seen in, in any extent, I guess, when it's not just the United States, when you're looking at the financing of a war or you're looking at the financing of a, an emerging nation, do you think that looking at that financing is seen as unpatriotic in any way? Yeah, I, th I think that people slip really quickly into patriot or anti-patriot discourse, and then people stop listening, and then people stop thinking. Um, and I really struggle with how to get a more straightforward message across that um, <laughs> that if you really want to work on the problems that this creates, you can't just see things along partisan lines. You have to have real information. Um, one important characteristic of the merchants in my story and the underwriters in my story is that war is a really interesting and profitable situation for them. And that the degree to which this is true is somewhat concealed in the political discourse because merchants love to complain um, and insurance companies will complain, you know, when things are getting too hot for them, they like to say, oh my God, we're American citizens, we're American property, government needs to help us, government needs to backstop our risk. So that side of the story is quite visible. And so sometimes you see in well-rounded American political histories, um, insurance company distress used as a proxy for real widespread commercial mercantile distress or even genuine insurance company distress. And if you actually look at the sources, you're like, yeah, well, they were distressed this week, but then look what they got next week. <laughs> they don't tend to write letters about when things stabilized for them the following week. Um, they're still pushing forward that discourse that they're in distress and that they need to be saved. Um, the real tell after the American Revolutionary War, and this, this isn't so much a an insurance story because insurance hasn't really consolidated in the United States yet. But the 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 number of people who emerge into prominence in the early United States who were former war contractors is really telling. Um, war is both this moment of unpredictable risk. It sort of attracts gamblers. It attracts this like high risk, high reward sort of speculation. But it's also this moment when people are afraid, they're patriotic, they're willing to put aside um, perhaps their long-term goals about how society should look to meet this one um, objective of winning the war. Um, and 
again, I think you're dealing with such a fundamental element of human political life that it's hard for me to sit here and tell you my advice as well. Whenever war is about to break out, that's when it's really time to make everybody sit down and have a long look at the finance and political economy of the United States. It's not going to happen, right? But I, I think if you put mechanisms in place to make these processes more visible, and if you make risk calculus real large, more of the um, just public, public political conversation um, to help people understand the way that even if they're not financiers, their own risks are bound up with those of the country and their choices in life are bounded by the choices that, that rich people make, that investors make. Um, you can never, never, never be done teaching this. You can never say it's enough. You always need more and more education about how all of our risks are bound up together, not just in a simplistic way, but in a complicated way that's structured by the people who have the money. So how dependent was the state on insurers and how dependent were insurers on the state? If either failed, would both? Right. They would both go down. And I, 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 the insurers don't want to be stuck in a failed country very much. And the state doesn't want a failed commercial sector. So those two institutions taking a bird's eye view um, need each other. So in a way, this book really is in the biggest picture about the relationship between business and the state. Um, and it's about the way business the, the kinds of deals that a coordinated commercial community makes with the state, where, again, in terms of investment, um, insurance companies are new, the U.S. government is new. So when they're, they're co-invested in each other, and they're also invested in early American banks, um, which is a lot of merchants and people with money in another configuration, they're sort of building themselves up out of nothing. And um, and it's it's not that it's all fake, right? There are people in the United States. The population is growing. Um, the customs houses are effectively extracting some, some revenue from the merchants, though not as much as they should. Um, and American merchant ships really are going around the world. But it's the interplay between belief and physical reality that's so fascinating to me. Uh, and yes, I think these the insurers are these sort of people at the pinnacle of the merchant community with the most information, the most resources, um, the most, yeah, the most communication networks. They, just, they, they know what's going on in the world. They know how merchant finance works, which is a real thing. Um, and so the, the state needs them, um, but they also need a state that's going to provide an effective legal framework for them, that's going to incorporate them, um, that's going to not be not be overrun by foreign armies. That's preferable too. Um, so it's the interplay that's so fascinating to me. But you also write how the insurer could also profit from a state's weakness. So was the state and the insurers, were they in cooperation? Were they in competition? Or was it a kind of a meld of both? It's a symbiotic relationship between merchants and the state, and the merchants sometimes give the state a, a bite. Um, so <laughs> there, there are symbiotic relationships where one party sometimes ouches the other party, I think, right? There's a little bit of a drag um, sometimes. And so as was the case for the British colonies it, as well, um, government tends to tolerate a bit of misbehavior from the merchant community because 
government is dependent on what it provides and because it doesn't want to come to this point where the merchant community offers a hard stop. So for the most part, I'll give you an example, for the most part, um, American insurers say that their customers have to follow the law. Um, their policies say, da, 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 we have to be law abiding. Their corporate charters say that the corporations can't do anything that is repugnant to the law. Um, so, and to a certain degree, this is true. Um, but when some underwriters want to break the law, um, or really more importantly, when they want to engage in a kind of trading during war that's like a legal gray area, the state is not in a position to police that, just doesn't have the resources to do it. So it's these leaders of this most coordinated part of the merchant community who are in a position to define the gray areas, to define whether property on a ship is American or not, which might determine its fate in, a, in an admiralty court. Um, they're the ones who you know, when they're, when they're engaging in illicit kind of trading, trading of goods later on, um, when merchants are engaging in illicit slave trading, and they're sort of selling their vessels, and they're doing these like, sham sales or false flagging in order to do that, um, the state is not in a position to police that and um, is not, there is not political will and effective power to, uh, to crack down, which really makes you wonder whether it's fundamentally a state's objective to do that. Um, we think of people as, you know, think, you think of a state as, as issuing laws and expecting everybody to follow them. But in practice, it's a lot more complicated that, than that. And as long as these folks in coordinated private enterprise are bringing in money, um, it is a, a fact of American history that, that the state has tolerated that and has gotten a great deal out of that toleration. You write about corporate constitution making. Did governance in the United States form alongside finance, both influencing each other? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I make an argument in the book that we need to take corporate constitution making, um, at least in this period, a lot more seriously as genuinely political constitution making. Um, this is the end of, well, I don't even know if it's the end, but in the early 19th century, we're coming out of a couple of centuries where um, modern states are coming into being, um, where we're learning what a modern state is and what powers it has, power to tax, the power to borrow, um, the, power to, the, the power to wage war, to police borders, maybe to control trade. Um, all of these things are, are coming into being, and they're coming into being in a world that's crowded with other political entities, not just with individual actors like merchants, um, but with, with guilds, with religious orders, um, with um, families and local dukedoms and other forms of political authority. And we tend to think of the United States by the 19th century as like hurtling toward this modern trajectory where we're like free of that kind of complicated, messy power sharing arrangement. This is like, the, it's like the modern state develops more administrative capacity in its own right. 
But I, I think we really need to take seriously this early American moment that's, that's really an early modern moment when all of these political formations are coming into being. And we need to understand corporations as institutions that have political life of their own um, and not just see the world or the country as bifurcated between public sector, private sector. Um, and, and this is something that that it, it sounds like something that would make other historians look a little askance at me when I said it, that we need to we need to take corporations seriously as political actors or as as maybe unacknowledged American citizens, because that sounds like I'm getting close to saying corporations are people, <gasps> you know, you, <laughs> on, on this podcast, you know, five listeners have already fainted. Um, but I. I, I think if you if you do get back into this time period, really, and see it through the eyes of people who lived there and understand that what they were doing was pouring all of this political mercantile power into these new forms, these corporations that have powers of their own, then you have a better understanding of the landscape that early Americans navigated and then governments navigated. Just a couple more questions for you, Hannah. You write that in London, the two monopoly insurance companies chartered in 1720, along with the underwriters and brokers of Lloyd's, supported the development of an imperial state intertwined with capitalist endeavor. In all of these these milieu, insurance has formed a visible part of a broader story in which well-functioning markets facilitated lending and the long-distance exchange of goods and well-functioning polities devoted their resources to enabling and sustaining healthy markets. Everywhere we find the rise of insurance, surely there we have found the rise of capitalism. And in those places, do we necessarily find the rise of empires or imperial power along with colonialism? Yeah, I think that I think that we do. Again, with this world that's crowded actually with different kinds of political formations. Um, again, I, I, I think there's a big stream of American discourse that sees capitalism as about um, more atomized free enterprise. And I think the lessons of the 18th and 19th century, and I'm, I'm quite frankly not really wouldn't believe that this world has gone away, is that when you have coordinated groups of people in the same business, in the same sector, um, with a lot of money, they have political power that taking them seriously as political actors and assets to the state that can sometimes often expand its reach um, are political actors worth considering in their own right that corporations may not be people but um, maybe they're giants maybe they're monsters maybe they're um, aggregates, little countries. I, I, I think we have to think really flexibly. Um, but empire has always depended on, it's never just been top down. It's always depended on the participation of, of individuals who are motivated by various beliefs. But individuals' relationships with their governments are always mediated by these other sorts of institutions that shape their, their financial landscapes and their belief systems. And for early Americans who are seeing their country start to develop, and, and, and they think of this very consciously, um, who see their country develop into an empire, as Alexander Hamilton said, the most interesting in the world, <laughs> as they would have put it, um, they absolutely understand the corporations that they're building, the financial institutions that they're building as parts of this giant imperial system. 
So uh, you also write that privilege, power, forced labor, expropriated land, and lucky timing also played their part in the American economic success story, to say the least. But merchant capital organized domestically and across imperial borders through insurers' customary rules, mythology, and politicking was vital to the story of independence from before its beginning. So what role did insurers play in that privileged power, forced labor, and expropriated land in lucky timing? Um, I mean, what comes to mind first and foremost is that they provide the infrastructure that buys time for uh, American settlers to start making money in other ways. The American Customs House starts bringing in money right away. The United States proves its solvency. These merchant communities um, they're they're a bit unsettled by the Revolutionary War. New people come in, uh, old people have gone out. So there's some musical chairs that's going on in port cities. But fundamentally, these institutions of merchant commerce, like marine insurance, provide this well-known structure that American merchants can sit back down in to coordinate their own activities and to start bringing in money right away so that once that infrastructure stabilizes that Americans who are looking to bet big um, can move into the back country, can take, um, can, can borrow money from the banks and spend it on plantations, um, can spend it on tracts of land. You know, all of this is borrowed money. The United States is built on um, it's this tower of cards that it does periodically collapse and then people pick up the cards so, so far and have managed to, to build it back up again. Um, it's awe-inspiring in its scale. Um, but this sort of story of these, like the ye olde story of the first American merchants who often appear to us, these like really boring figures, their portraits are on the walls of the first American historical societies, but we don't remember what they did. We don't remember them as, as risk-taking people whose big investment in the state right away is sort of becomes these tent poles that signal stability to the international community. They're betting on the United States. Their bets starting to pay off. They reassure foreigners to bet on the United States. And then everything else, all of the all of the the glory, the terror, the cruelty, um, that human life that takes place in the decades thereafter is shaped by that system's ability to snap into place really quickly. And, I, you know, I'm not saying insurance is the one key to the American founding, but I was astonished when I started this project to see how complex and effective and politically powerful this quiet system was that organized American merchants into these um, political blobs that were able to build themselves into the state. Just a couple more questions for you, I promise. It's just that this is such a fascinating book and that I, I think I wrote 75 questions for us. Uh, but <laughs> you, you find, the towards the end of your book, you find the United States to have been an institution operating under more serious constraints in its originary moments than popular historical narratives of the revolutionary age tend to suggest. All this, though this may at first seem a demoralizing notion that a fresh start, even in a brand new republic, was never really possible, the corollary is that if any change is possible at all, 
all, a fresh start must not be necessary to accomplish it. We might, in fact, draw one further conclusion. If insurance is always entangled with the project of governance, then every time we make a radical change in the way insurance works, we have, in truth, brought on a new age of state making. So if we seek a radical change in governance, must there be a radical change in insurance? Um, I think that it's really, really central. I think that we uh, look, I mean, we've spent the past two years dealing with the risks of coronavirus. Um, we're in a century where the risks of global climate change are never going to be far from our minds. Um, and it's really difficult for people to draw those big stories together. You know, we're not done with a big conversation, I hope, on American health insurance and um, the ways that we manage the risks that our citizens take by getting sick. And we tend to see these issues sort of one at a time or in terms of individual interest groups. But from a, sort of a systems perspective, it's so important to see the whole political landscape and to see that risks exist and risks are always going to be dealt with by humans in one way or another, whether that's dealt with by their federal governments in certain ways, in the same way that the, the federal government's already spending you know, huge amounts of money on a defense infrastructure that one hopes would protect us against foreign invasion. Like that's a risk that we we would like our governments to manage. Um, but that tends to be handled with a certain sort of rhetoric, whereas the risks faced to citizens and their homes by climate change tends to be understood um, completely differently. I think that it's it's utterly urgent for us to, on every issue, understand what the whole risk landscape is. And it's not just a question of, uh, you know, a government, we ask government to do something or not do something. That Those risks exist, risks of flood, risk of cancer, um, risk of long COVID. Those, those are there. And if a government isn't doing it, then people are dealing with it or confronting those risks in different ways. So yeah, every time that we have a risk conversation, it should be a broad and deep risk conversation. And it should be a conversation that apprehends that, that there's no getting outside of the political landscape here, that if a government isn't doing something, um, it's not like the issue is not that the issue goes away. It's just that other kinds of hardship are being created. We have been speaking with historian Hannah Farber, author of The Underwriters of the United States, How Insurance Shaped the American Founding. You can follow Hannah on Twitter at FarberHannah. Our final guest that we ask to all of our guests, we promise, is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write as insurance companies formed. The country was on the cusp of a vast infrastructural transition, often described as a movement from a pre-capitalist or merchant capitalist before to a market capitalist or industrial capitalist after. Many historians surveying these developments have concluded that the United States emerged soon after its independence, for better or for worse, as a political institution uniquely suited for and increasingly dedicated to the facilitation of modern capitalism. So in your opinion, more than anything, are the founding documents a facilitation of modern capitalism? Are they more about facilitating modern capitalism or facilitating democracy? Um, I would say 
that <laughs> that it's not primarily for the development of American capitalism. We could write up a lot of founding documents that could be more facilitating of capitalism than the ones that we have. I think that um, democracy is also not the thing that Americans thought that they were creating. I think that the best way to think of this founding period is that the American founding documents were written by tired committees and um, they were put together in ways that were supposed to get the approval of people in their own time um, as effectively as possible. And they've left us with enormous questions. Um, they could not have foreseen the capitalism that we handle today and that um, you know, we can look to them in their context to understand how those documents are formed and are those their language and um, look through their eyes to see um, what I believe and hope to be the most continuous from that time period, which is the, the hope for a prosperous and successful country. Um, and I think it's entirely legitimate for us to change what we think that means. Well, first of all, I just want to say my mind is blown. I really appreciate that. Uh, Hannah, this uh, book is just absolutely amazing. I think anybody who is interested in the founding age of the United States and the age of American state making should check out your book. Again, Hannah Farber is the author of Underwriters of the United States, How Insurance Shaped the American Founding. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is a very, very enlightening conversation for me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996. This is hell, and if that conversation with Hannah on insurance being instrumental in the making of the United States and heavily influencing the founding documents, if all that blew your mind as well or was in some way enlightening or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to you for your support. Sebastian, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listening audience is responding so far. Our question from hell this week is, whatcha influencing? Whatcha influencing? Um, and on Facebook, Greg Maxi says uh, he's influencing my ever-creeping death. No, oh. <laughs> we all are, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, with uh, every every single breath we, we take. Right, from birth on. Yeah, We're right. always influencing our death. Uh, Kim G says, soup skeptics. All right. <laughs> Uh, Aaron D says enfeebled minds. <laughs> All right. Michael D says how big my stomach is getting. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, Everybody's got that problem. Yeah, I, I blame it on COVID. Mm. Uh, Alex B says the labor mil militancy of my union. I hope. All right. I hope so too. Mm -hmm. David S says myself with alcohol and assorted other substances. <laughs> I mean, if you're influenced, if you're under the influence, you are certainly influenced. Yes, you are definitely. Uh, Joel G says, "Not a damn thing." <laughs> All right. I like the idea of an influencer being somebody who just gets drunk a lot. I mean, <laughs> I like that. And uh, finally, John T says, "When I take a few dollars to a pizzeria, I can influence a counterperson to hand me a slice." Oh, 
There you go. That seems like a very mercantile exchange. We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell on our next show. Email us, message us via Facebook, or tweet at us on Twitter with your guest and or topic suggestions, or tell us anything you'd like us to share on the show, and we will likely read it on air. We got an email from Steve Perry, the lead singer of Journey, who is a longtime listener of the show. Steve writes... Hi, Chuck and Alex. Greetings from Winnetka, Illinois. Who knew that the lead singer of Journey lived in Winnetka? I hope you guys are well. I'd like to suggest a guest for your show on the topic of the climate crisis. Scott Stoll, S-T-O-L-L, is known for his best-selling book, Falling Uphill, One Man's Quest for Happiness Around the World on a Bicycle. Scott has also written a number of children's books and most recently has researched and studied the issue of the climate crisis from a new perspective. That of, get this, oxygen loss. I've never heard anybody write of or discuss oxygen loss. Maybe they did and it's come up on the show. I just don't remember. With all the focus on CO2, Steve writes, we rarely consider that when we burn fossil fuels, we are bonding breathable oxygen with carbon, making it unbreathable to us. We have been tapping into Earth's oxygen reserve at unprecedented rates, a reserve that required billions of years to form. By the way, Oxygen is also a cooling gas. Scott has written a number of papers in which he re-examines how we measure global oxygen levels in the oceans and the atmosphere and presents a startling picture. Is the Earth producing enough oxygen for future generations? You can find Scott's research at contact and contact info at scottstoll.com. Again, that's Scott, S-T-O-L-L.com. If I can be of any help, please let me know. Scott is actually a friend of mine, and we are in touch on our ongoing basis. Thank you very much, Steve. Not the lead singer from Journey Perry. Damn it, I thought he was. Thanks, Steve. Not the lead singer from Journey Perry. And this is why we ask for guest and topic suggestions from you, because I've never heard of Scott Stoll or the idea of oxygen depletion, which sounds frightening as hell. Steve, not the lead singer from Jury Perry, uh, Journey Perry. We will be checking out Scott's work, and we will be getting in touch with you if we need help contacting Scott, whose work, again, can be found at scottstoll.com. We also got an email from Ivar S. on our interview, longtime listener Ivar S., on our interview with Deanira Navarez-Martinez, who discussed her radical housing journal paper, Homelessness, in Southern California last week. Ivar writes, Chuck, excellent interview. I couldn't help thinking about Reagan's defunding of public housing during the interview, which ultimately led to the destruction of many units, but neither of you ever mentioned it. Best, Ivar. P.S. Since I wrote this reply on a phone, I make no claims as to its correctness. Ivar, you are absolutely correct that we never brought up President Reagan's defunding of public housing or his defunding of social services, which led to widespread homelessness beginning in the early 1980s. At that time, there was as much homelessness denialism as there would later be when it comes to climate change. Reagan and his supporters referred to them as the invisible homeless because they never saw any homeless people where they live, not realizing that what they were actually revealing was segregation, that the poor and those who were not live and those the poor, <laughs> and the poor and those who were not lived in very different and faraway places. In reality, the homeless were not invisible, but they were invisible to those who were in denial of increasing poverty during and caused by Reaganomics. What was weird to me at the time was how I saw homeless people every day. And I lived in the same area as many of the people who were insisting they could not see any homeless people on the streets. I mean, 
I saw them, and I'm legally blind. What I should have also seen is an emerging denialism that leads to an alternative reality that denies, well, reality that makes the homeless invisible and climate change a socialist plot. Finally, we got an email from Demi D, who writes, Dear Chuck, after hearing the introduction on your When the Rich Take Space episode, I thought it would go ahead and reach out for some remote work possibilities. I've been a big fan since 2013-ish and only work part-time, so I have the time and resources to help out with the podcast, other content as needed. I live in Vienna, Austria now. And I don't have much experience in this area, but I think I can generally get stuff done if I get a bit of guidance. I'm a Turkish-American writer with a background in human rights and literature. I also make art and research alternative justices for victims of violent crime. Let me know if you could use remote help. It would be a real privilege to work with your team. Warmly, Demi. Thanks for showing interest. I've forwarded your email on to Alex as well. Alex is working hard to put a new staff together to get all of the projects that have not been finished finally up and running. And we could use all the help we can get, Demi, so truly appreciate it, even if it is help from someone who lives as far away as Vienna, Austria. If you have a guest or topic suggestion or would like to work as a board operator here in studio or join the crew remotely online or have anything you'd like to share with us, send it to chuck at thisishell.com. And if you do, we'll likely share it right here on air. Sebastian, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? I guess we don't know, do we? Uh, No, the only thing that we do know is that uh, the next show will be on Thursday and uh, that we will have a message from our dear friend Jeff Dorchen. And this week during the Moment of Truth, Jeff Dorchen bites a handbook that feeds him. For those of you who are listening to the live stream, or podcast right now. We are off tomorrow, Wednesday, and return on Thursday. For those who are listening to the world broadcast premiere on WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment, you won't even notice. Thanks to our guest historian, Hannah Farber, author of... Farber? Arthur. Farber, author of Underwriters of the United States, How Insurance Shaped the American Founding. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Sebastian Voper. Thank you, Sebastian, for producing. We're not joking. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>